Well, good morning again. So, 17 or 18 years ago, Amy and I are kind of minding our own business, and um, I'm in real estate, and Amy's doing, I think, catering at that point. We have a good life. We just bought a, uh, a, re- uh, a foreclosure, had renovated it. Um, you know, it was the dream house. We're serving the Lord faithfully. We're plugged into a, a local church. You know, we're doing the D-Nows. We're, um, we're doing the witnessing program that the church did. We're teaching Sunday school. Like, everything's great. And, and you know, we're being faithful and, and doing the things we're supposed to do. Uh, and then God takes John 21, this middle section that we're going to look at, and echoes it into my heart and mind constantly. And so when I'm praying, do you love me? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Um, when, we're, when we're sitting in church and it's response time, do you love me? Well, yeah. Okay, feed my sheep. Um, when I'm just working at my computer trying to look up comps for real estate, do you love me? Yeah. Feed my sheep. And, you know, about a month of this, uh, even a hard head like mine starts to figure out, okay, God must be up to something in our lives. Uh, which kind of terrified me, like things are good, and Amy's happy, and the, you know, the house, it's the dream house, and like, what does this mean? So I sat down with, a, uh, with our pastor, our, you know, one of the associate pastors at the time, and he's like, yeah, this is what that means. And uh, this was the passage that God used to call me into ministry um, 17 or 18 years ago at this point. So it has a special place in my heart, um, and I hope I'm able to communicate it to you in a way that's just, uh, that conveys a little bit of that. And, you know, even as we've sung, um, hopefully there's so many different themes that come throughout this passage. Hopefully even as we sung, you're going to see some of those themes like shame and regret and a big cross that takes care of that stuff. Um, our guilt and a cross that takes care of that stuff. Because uh, we're going to meet a guy that needs a cross-sized solution to his own failure, to his own regret, to his own shame. Uh, so we're working our way. This is the last, uh, uh, the 46th message um, in the book of John as we wrap it up. Uh, and we're, we're finishing it up here. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the resurrection encounters. And so the key words throughout the resurrection encounters have been see and believe or saw and believe, saw and believe. And so uh, John gets to the empty tomb. He sees the, the empty linen cloth now, uh, and he believes. Mary sees the Lord, and he finally reveals himself to her, and she clings to him. Um, we find the disciples. They see the Lord, and they're glad. We find Thomas. He sees the Lord, or he doubts, right, because he didn't see the Lord, and he will not believe unless he sees the Lord and is able to touch the, the wounds, and he's able to touch the, the place in his side. So he will not believe unless he sees and then he sees the Lord, and he makes the saving declaration in the whole book of John, my Lord and my God. And Jesus uses that to transition from those who get to see and believe to those that are blessed because they are going to believe without ever getting to see. And Peter reaffirms that as we talked about last week. Even though you have not seen him, you believe and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so seeing, believing now for you and for me, those who have gotten to hear the witness of John, we don't see, but we get to hear of one who did see. And through that witness, through your witness, through our witness, through 
generation after generation after generation over thousands of years now, faithful witnesses, is the reason that you're sitting in this church today because there are people who took seriously that the way Jesus was sent is the way they're sent. And now it's our turn, it's our mantle to be those who haven't seen, we have believed, and now we have a message that can invite others to believe too. And so today we're looking at a restoration story. Uh, John very easily could have finished his book at the end of the last chapter. He wrote a nice little summary statement of the whole book, like I write this so that you'll believe, and in believing have life, and he could be done. But the Holy Spirit isn't done. Jesus has one more thing to accomplish, and it is taking a chapter of his book to show him walking back to a failed disciple who he could have left, but walking into his life, walking into his failure, and bringing him back, restoring him. And so with that, let's, let's look at the text in John 21. So after this, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples again by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, who was called the twin, and Nathaniel of, of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and then there were two other disciples, and they were together. And Simon Peter's like, I'm going fishing. And the other said, well, we'll go with you. And so they went out, and they got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But just about day, as day was breaking, Jesus came, and he stood on the shore. And they didn't know it was Jesus, and he said to them, children, did you? catch any fish and they said no and he said well cast your net out on the right side of the boat and you'll find some and so they cast their net out and they weren't able to haul it back in because of the quantity of the fish and so john looks over at peter he says to peter it's the lord and peter when he heard it was the lord he put on his outer garment because he was stripped down for work and he threw himself into the sea And then the other disciples came with the boat, and they were dragging the fish behind them because they weren't very far off, just about a 100 yards. And when they got to the land, they found a charcoal fire there with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, go, bring some of the fish you caught. And so Peter goes onto the boat, and he hauls ashore this, this net full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, it didn't break, or the nets were not torn. And Jesus said, come, have breakfast. And none of them dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Now, this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And as breakfast was finishing, Jesus looked and said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you you know I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you would dress yourself and go where you wanted to. But when you're older, you will stretch your hands out. And someone else will dress you. And they will carry you where you do not want to go. 
Now, he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now, then Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following after them. This was the same disciple that leaned himself up against Jesus at the supper and asked, who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus said to him, or Peter said to the Lord, well, what about this man? And Jesus said, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, this saying spread widely among the brothers that this disciple is not to die. But Jesus didn't say that he wasn't going to die. He said, if it is my will that, I, that he remain till I come. If it is my will that he remain till I come, then what is that? To you Now, this is the disciple that is bearing witness, who is writing these things, and who has, written these, or who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, Jesus did many other things. And if they were written down, I suppose that a world, the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Let's pray. So, Father... Help us to hear the words of this text and run to you, not from you. Help us to hear the words of this text probing our hearts as they really love there and that we would run to you, not from you. Help us to hear the words of this text and our failures and run to you, not from you. Help us to hear the words of this text that says there's going to be a cost to follow you and to follow you anyways, to run to you and not from you. And Lord, help us to hear the words of this text, that instead of looking around at the lot of others and the walk of others and the acclaim or status of others or the suffering of others or the or the ease of others. And instead, look at you and walk the path that you have for us. God, we pray for that in Jesus name. Amen. So as we jump into the text, there is a very definite parallel in the life of Peter and in the life of Jesus that I want to read for us uh, because I want to put these two two things side by side. And I won't read it. I'll just kind of share with it. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, there is a very similar incident. And so Jesus is teaching on the, on the shore of the same lake, right? The Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret, and the Sea of Galilee are all the same place. Up in Galilee just has a bunch of names for the same thing. And so Jesus is on this very same lake. And he's, te- he's teaching at the shore, and the crowds keep coming, and the crowds keep coming, and they're pressing in, and they're pressing in. And so it gets so crowded that he actually gets in the boat of a certain guy whose name is Simon. And he says, Simon, would you just cast a little bit out from the shore so that I can kind of have a platform, a stage to teach from, uh, because the crowd's pressing in so much. And so he goes out, and he sits, and he teaches the, the people that are on the shore while he's just a little way off from the shore in a boat. And then after he's finished teaching, he's like, okay, cast, go on out and just throw your nets out into the deep for a catch. And Simon, a professional fisherman who has been fishing all night long, it's like, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, you say so, I'll do it. And so they throw the net out and they start to pull it up. And the net is so full of fish that the net starts tearing and breaking and ripping. And so they call their partners out and their partners come in this other boat. And and they, they take the fish and they start dividing them into the two boats. And there's so many fish that the boats actually begin to sink. And while that is happening, Peter realizes, everybody's astonished, Peter realizes something. There is something special about this Jesus guy. 
He is a holy man. Now, how much he knows, we don't know. Probably not very much based on the, the evidence following. But uh, he knows this is a prophet. He knows this is a holy man. He knows he is a sinner and a sinful man. He is unworthy of someone like this being in his boat and being near him. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, please leave. I am a sinful man. Depart from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And Jesus is like, ah, come on. From now on, you're going to be catching men instead of fish. And they left everything they had to follow him. This was the commissioning of Peter. This was the start of Peter and Jesus' journey together. And, ha- and, and so, like, very similar. I want to just throw a few of the similarities out. They fished all night long, and they caught nothing. Now, in John, we have run into this concept of nothing before. Right? Jesus in John chapter 15 says, Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you can fish all you want, but you can't do anything. And I think that's one of the things that, 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 that John is kind of uh, alluding to in this, because he does even talk later about, although the net was full, so full of fish, it, it wasn't torn. He, he ties these two together to a degree. And so he's like, you can do nothing, but... You abide in me and you bear much fruit. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, nothing after all night work becomes something after five minutes of throwing a net in the water, right? And so both of these, they fish all night. Both of these, they catch nothing. Both of these, Jesus shows up on the scene and nothing turns into this massive catch that is so astonishing that a hardened professional fisherman is so amazed that he falls down at the feet of Jesus and he says, leave me, I'm unworthy. Leave me, I am sinful. And this is where the stories separate. This is where it becomes a contrast instead of a comparison. Because in the first story, Jesus, I mean, Peter sees his unworthiness, he sees his sinfulness, and he wants Jesus to leave because he's not worthy of his presence. And, you know, by the way, that's the perfect kind of person. For Jesus, right, blessed are the poor in spirit. They get the kingdom. This is exactly the kind of people that Jesus is pursuing. Is He didn't come to save the well because they don't need a doctor. He came for the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so he's, he's right where he needs to be with, right who he needs to be there with because it's a man who sees his sinfulness. He sees his poverty of spirit. He sees he has no right to be in the presence of someone like this. But then fast forward three years. And Peter has a denial-shaped elephant on his, in between he and Jesus. The weight of the denial of Jesus carrying on him like the weight of the world. And after fishing all night and catching nothing in this text, John, the perceptive one, Peter, the action-oriented one, right? We've seen that throughout their lives together. John's all about, he catches on to things. Peter is like, I'm going to do something. And so John is like, Peter, this is Jesus. Now, why they didn't know it was Jesus, we don't know. But, you know, it's, it's pre-dawn and 100 yards off. So, you know, if they have eyes like mine, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know it was you either. Or it could be that Jesus was veiling himself as he had in the past. Um, but we don't know. But John is like, hey, that's Jesus. Now, you'd think Peter would get it. Like, oh, we've seen this story before. Like, we've seen this movie before. But he doesn't. So he's like, that's Jesus. And, and John was like, let me throw my clothes on. Now, probably what that means is he had just kind of loosened up all his outer garments to work. Right, and so he just tightens back up his robe and tucks it back up in the belt so he could so he could swim. Right, possibly that he's completely stripped down, not as likely. Um, and so he throws himself into the water. Look at the difference in responses. Depart from me, I'm a sinner. They leave everything to follow him. Peter, it's Jesus. 
And he can't even wait for the boat to get 100 yards. He dives into the ocean. He says, if I can just get to Jesus, it's going to be okay again. If I can just get to Jesus, things can be made whole. If I can just get to Jesus, everything can get right again. And so he throws himself into the ocean. He forgets the guy's working. He forgets, hey, we got to finish this. I forget the fish. I need Jesus. And he swims to the shore to get Jesus. And then when they get back to, um, to, the, to the land, to the shore, we find that like, Jesus has already prepared them a nice hot breakfast. He is still serving his own. He, he serves them the Last Supper. He washes their feet at the Last Supper. And now, in the, after the resurrection and our closing account, He's prepared breakfast for them after a long night of work. They come back to fish, and then he's like, hey, bring some more fish. And I mean, Peter must be a hoss, right? He must be a beast because he goes up on the boat, slings over his shoulder this net with 153 large fish in it and drags that, that sucker ashore, right? And so beast mode Peter gets that, that net back on the, on, the, on the thing. They get some fish. Like, so round, round one is ready with the bread and the fish. Now round two is here, and then Jesus serves them some bread, and he serves them some fish. And then the way the story opened is the way it closed. This was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples after his resurrection, right? And so before we move on, one word that starts, right, he revealed himself this way. And then in verse 7, he revealed himself this way. Now, that's a really specific word in the book of John. And so it's not just Jesus appeared. It's not just they saw Jesus. It's Jesus showed something about himself in this encounter. He revealed something about Jesus in this encounter. Right? And so Jesus revealed himself to them. So that means we're supposed to look. What is Jesus like? What is Jesus showing us new about himself or filling in about himself during this encounter? Now, the other thing that's a little bit strange is like, these disciples are very tentative, aren't they? Peter, or Jesus has to say, come on now, have breakfast with me. And then it's like they're all sitting around with this uneasy feeling. Is it really him? Like we know it's Jesus, but is it really Jesus? If it's really Jesus, what does this mean? And so they dare not ask him, even though they know, they dare not ask him, who, who are you? Like they know it's Jesus, but there's this like, is this really you, Jesus? Is this really you, Jesus? And so... As we move on, I want, you to, I want you to think about this encounter with Peter. I want you to think, like, Jesus pursues sinful people. Jesus pursues people like that. And then he also pursues for restoration sinful people. Which makes you and which makes me the perfect candidates for Jesus to be after us. And he's not after us to condemn He's after us to restore. He's after us to forgive. He's after us to commission. He's after us to say, go follow me now that you're mine. And so, can you resonate with this experience? Can you resonate with it? Because here's the thing. So many of us, when we meet Jesus, he is holy. And when we see Jesus and encounter Jesus, he is holy. And, and, and he's so much more than like just singing a song about holy. He really is holy. And so there's this thing in us that gets convicted. There's this thing in us that, that realizes I am not worthy for this. And it's in that moment that we decide, are we going to be people that are like, no, leave. Because I can't, I can't take the, gla- the gaze of these eyes of fire burning through my soul. Are we people that are like, I'm going to run to him because I know he has forgiveness. I'm going to run to him because I know he has restoration. And so I want you to look at your own life. Are you someone that is hiding away 
parts of your life, hiding away some of the things that, that Jesus would see if he looked there? Or are you somebody that with your failure, with your sin, with your mess up again, that takes it and runs back to Jesus, that throws yourself back into the ocean to swim to Jesus who's waiting for you? And I want to plead with you to be the kind of person that in your failure, run to Jesus. Don't let your failure push you from him. Because that happens to us so much. Like, they're like, see, and he's not going to take you back after this one. See how you've blown it. See how you failed. See how you're not good enough. And Jesus is like, oh, they're fine. But here I am. Here I am. And so I want to encourage you to be the kind of person that in your failure, don't let your failure drive you from Jesus, but let your failure drive you to Jesus. And now as we move into the second phase of the story, there's a simple question that is asked that I want you to ask yourself. I want to ask myself. It's a question of self-evaluation. It's a question of reflection that I think every one of us should answer. Not because we're Peter, but because we're all Peter, right? Do you love me? Not do you go to church. Not do you serve at church. Not is your name on the church ledger somewhere. Not do you do good works. Do you love me? And let that be the question that probes you to your soul. Let that be the question that opens up your heart. Let that be the question that drives you deeper into self-reflection. Because it's not a question for condemnation. It's a question for cleansing. And so the question for restoration, just like it is in this text. He's not there to condemn Peter. Peter's already got this thing on his shoulders. And so I want you to think about Peter leading up to this point. Peter is the biggest boaster. Peter is the biggest stick-his-foot-in-his-mouth kind of disciple. But Peter also comes up with some gems. It is Peter who made the confession Jesus is going to build his church on. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's the one that comes out swinging when they want to arrest Jesus. Now, it may be misguided, but he did it, right? Peter's the one that's like, I will die for you. So Peter's the big boaster. Peter is the guy that puts his foot in his mouth. And Peter is the guy that, that, um, that comes and acts and gets to work, right? He's also the guy. And if we didn't have this account in the text, there would be to some degree the defining moment of Peter's life would not be those boasts. It would not be cutting off the, the guy's ear. It would not be he puts his foot in his mouth. The defining moment of Peter's life if Jesus didn't come and write John 21 in, this, in, in the Bible for us would be when he knocks on the door and the doorkeeper's like, oh, you're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. And then he's sitting around a, a crowd around the charcoal fire because it's cold. And this servant girl's like, you're one of his disciples. You're Galilean. And he's like, I don't know him. And then a little bit later, the servant girl again. No, you're definitely one of them. I swear, curses on myself. I don't know that guy. And then Jesus stares at him. And they lock eyes, and Jesus goes and he weeps his soul out after this encounter. That's the Peter in the eyes of the, uh, the other disciples, somebody who has failed, somebody that has denied Jesus. And so Jesus is operating on three levels now. Forgiveness is going to be granted. He is going to be restored in the eyes of the other disciples that he is going to be tasked to be one of the key leaders of. And Peter's going to be restored in Peter's own eyes. Can you imagine the sheepishness? Can you imagine the brokenness if the last earthly encounter you had with Jesus was your denial of him? Can you imagine how he's sitting there? I want to be to Jesus. I want to be restored to him, but I failed him so bad. 
I denied him. His moment of the greatest agony, and I left him and denied him. And that's Peter. Except for we have this text. And I want you to notice, he asked it three times, obviously three denials, three questions, three affirmations, three commissionings. Those are all meant to be together, right? That he's completely restoring him. Every time you've denied, you've now confessed. Every time you've denied, you've now been recommissioned. But I also want you to think how easy it is for you to answer. If I were to just say, church, do you love Jesus? Like, amen, just sung it. We're good. Went to Passion Conference, sung it for like three days in a row. Uh, you know, Sunday school, yeah, I sit in Sunday school and I learn it. And so I'm like, do you love Jesus? You're like, yes. What happens when you ask the question a second time? Do you, do you really love Jesus? And now all of a sudden, it's not the quick, easy answer. It's the, oh, wait a second. Do I love him? Does my life look like I love him? Do I really love him? I, I think so, Jesus. It's not, oh, maybe. Yes, yes, definitely, I love you. But I see some awful, big frailty and pitiful in here. But yeah, I love you, Jesus. And then he asks you a third time, and he asks Peter a third time. Do you love me? And after the easy answer, and after the wait a second, I better think a little more on this answer to the final answer of, yeah, you know I'm frail, you know I'm pitiful, but I love you, Jesus. And yes, I will affirm that. And so there's something about asking the question three times that that takes us past that surface answer, doesn't it? And you have to really ask, you know, okay, if I got to do this again, then I got to really ask the question. And so he goes to Peter, Peter, do you, do you love me? And he penetrates and he just lays Peter open with this question. Do you love me more than these? Now that could be the fishing instruments and the fish. Do you love me more than your profession? Probably is, do you love me more than these other disciples? Because you spent the last three years boasting, I'll die with you. Boasting, I love with you. If everybody else leaves you, I'll never leave you. You spent the last three years being the guy. And now in front of everybody else, you're the guy that denied. And so he just lays Peter open with a simple question. Do you love me more than these? And Peter has to look at all that denial and all that failure and all that shame dead in the face and answer the question again. And yes, and then he asks them again, again, three times, and he commissions them, feed my lambs. And he asks them again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. And he doesn't say, Peter, go be a pastor. He says, Peter, go take care of people. Go serve people. Go make people immature to mature. Go take the sick and the wounded and make them whole again. Go take those who don't know and teach them and preach to them and grow them. Peter, tend. Peter, feed. Peter, care for my sheep. By the way, they're not your sheep. They're mine. Right? And so, do you love me? Feed my sheep. I do want to point this out. This is Chris's interpretation with other commentaries involved. But there is, a, there is a division on the commentaries as to whether this matters or not. I'm going to give it to you. I interpret it this way. You can see if it matters or not. You can erase it. That's okay. So in the, in the Bible, there's multiple words for love. But here, in our English translation, it all says love. But there are two words for love being used. So agape, God kind of love, like a, a distinctly Christian kind of love, right, that is God-empowered. And then phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. 
There is a familial fear, one, I mean, true love, like love, your, love like you love your family, love, and agape. And so Jesus, question one, let me read this way. Do you agape me, Peter? I phileo you, Jesus. Question two, do you agape me, Peter? I phileo you, Jesus. Do you even phileo me, Peter? Yes, I phileo you, Jesus. Right? And so he switches it. Do you, do you love me with this kind of love? I can't say that, but I do love you. Do you love me with this kind of love? I can't say that, but I do love you. I love you fiercely. I love you like my brother and my Lord and my teacher and my master. But do you even love me that way, Peter? Yes, I absolutely love you that way, Jesus. And you see that restoration taking place. So I invite you to ask this question of yourself. Rather, let Jesus ask this question of you. Strip away the getting and going to church. Strip away the Sunday school classes. Strip away the book studies you've done. Strip away all the service projects you've done and the mission projects and mission trips you've done. Take all that away. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? And don't just answer it quickly. Let him ask it again. Do you love me? Let him ask it again. Do you love me? And it isn't a question that's meant to go down into your soul to condemn you. It's a question to go down to your soul and find all the junk that's there. Rip it out. So that restoration and love can really be what comes out at the end of it. Do you love me? And at the end of that, can you say, yes, Lord. You know everything. I'm grieved you have to ask. But I know why you have to ask. I love you. And then it goes down to the cost of discipleship, right? Okay, Peter, you have a commissioning. You're going to care for my people. You're not going to be a pastor. You're going to care for my people, right? Same word that's used in Acts 20 of the Ephesians elders, same word that he commissions in 1 Peter 4 and 5 to the new shepherds. Like, it's nothing special for Peter right here. It's simply, this is the, this is the task, and it's the same thing Peter is going to say to the next people after him. That's your task too. Go, go take care of them. Go shepherd them. Shepherd the flock of God. Um, but then he goes and he says, you know, this, this kind of proverb type language of, all right, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. When you're old, you're going to stretch your hands out. That is an, uh, uh, an uh, uh, what do you say? a euphemism, a nice way of saying you're going to go on a cross. And John and Peter know exactly what he's saying. This is the kind of death by which Peter is going to glorify God. And so look what he says. Peter, you are going to die a horrible death that looks like my death. You are going to die the most gruesome, horrible death that you can possibly imagine that the Roman uh, government could come up with to torture people. You're going to die that way. You're going to glorify me with your last breath that way. Follow me. What is he saying? There's going to be a cost to following me. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. Now, Peter's cost is this, but we all have a cost, right? And so Peter is going to write a book about suffering and glory. If you read through 1 Peter, suffering and glory, you've been granted to suffer. Glorify God in your suffering. And then glorify God on the day of visitation, like suffering, glory. Peter lives his whole ministry under the shadow of a coming cross. And what does Jesus say in the middle of that? Follow me. Here's the cost. Follow me anyways. 
Here's what's waiting for you at the end of this journey. Follow me anyways. And so Peter takes that message to heart. He lives under the shadow of that cross, and then he gives that to the people that he serves and ministers to. Oh, they're suffering. But that suffering will be the very means of glory for God, glorifying to God. Follow me anyways. Now think about it. Like For us, we can, we can be quiet. We can kind of keep that part separate. And I don't have to worry as much about that. I'll just, I'll just kind of keep the Christian part of me out of the circles that wouldn't like it. And we can do that. And we'll miss out on some suffering. Some suffering will not enter our lives if we choose to do it that way. But you know what else we'll miss? You'll miss Jesus in that too. Because the only road you will encounter Jesus on is the road of following him. And the road of following him will have costs. The road of following him will have suffering that is unique because you follow him. But the only road you'll meet Jesus on is his road, not yours. And so we think, I can, I, can get, I, can just, I can get away from some of the cost if I'm just quiet. Yeah, but you'll also get away from the ability to encounter Jesus. And so Peter, you're going to die a horrible death. Follow me. And, Jesus, and Peter, for 30 years, ministers, 30 years serves, 30 years shepherds, 30 years does exactly what Jesus says. And in that 30th year, he has put on a Roman cross. And he's killed for it. There will be a cost if you follow Jesus. But you'll encounter Jesus on the road of following Jesus and nowhere else. It's worth it. It's worth it. Follow him. Follow him. And so uh, Peter turns around and he sees somebody's following him, right? The disciple who Jesus loves. And so at some point over the conversation with, with uh, over breakfast and this do you love me conversation, they get up and they start walking the beach together, Peter and Jesus, having this conversation about cost and about discipleship. And he glances back and, and John is there, the disciple whom Jesus loves, right? A little more evidence that that's John here because, you know, we know it's not Thomas. Um, Peter's already mentioned in the text. And so we just have a couple other disciples left. And so we've got John there. And we're described, he's described for us like he's the one that leaned up against Jesus during the supper and said, who's going to betray you? And so he establishes an intimacy with Jesus between the disciples Jesus loves and, and Jesus. But he also identifies a connection to and an intimacy with Peter. Because you remember it was Peter that was like, hey, how do you know who it is? Right? It was Peter in that very same encounter that prompted the question. And so he's an establishing a connection between both of them. Peter and John aren't rivals. They're friends. They have a, a bond and a connection together that has been shown throughout these, these texts, right? They run, they're together getting the news. They run to the tomb together. And here they're following together, seeing what's happened. So Peter's like, Lord, what about him? And I love this. Like, if I could put it in Chris language, what about him, Jesus? Nanya, you follow me. Like, what about, what's his lot? What's his road? What's his path? What's his cost? What is he going to have to suffer for your name? And Peter's like, or Jesus is like, if I want him to stay perfectly healthy until I come back and get him, what's that to you? It is none of your business. You follow me on the path that I have for you. Oh, man, isn't it tempting to be like, 
Why do they get more recognition? Why do they have a bigger ministry? Why do they have more influence? Why do they have it so easy and I have it so hard? Why is it that things go right for them and everything seems to go wrong for me? Why? In this sense only, don't worry about anyone else's walk. Worry about being faithful in yours. You will meet Jesus on your walk with Jesus with whatever hardship and pain that he has to comfort and sustain you through, you will meet Jesus on your road with Jesus. Don't compare it to and don't worry about. It is none of your business what God ordains for another person's walk, another person's faithfulness. You focus on faithfulness with the walk he gives you, the task he gives you, the life he gives you. Right? So don't worry if I want him to go. Now, this obviously became this big saying among the disciples. And so, like, John's getting older. Jesus is going to come back soon because he can't die until Jesus comes back. Right? He's not going to die. And, and John's like, let me correct that. He never said I wasn't going to die. He just simply said that if I, if I will that he doesn't, then it's none of your business. Right? So none of your business if he doesn't pay the same price you pay. And the same thing is true for us. It's none of our business if other people don't have the cost that we have. If they don't have the hardship we have. It's our, we have been entrusted with this life, this walk, this path, with this Jesus. And if we walk the path he's given us, we'll meet him, we'll encounter him, we'll abide in him. But if we want to worry about walking someone else's path, we'll completely miss him. And then John kind of does some mulling to end it you know peter has been commissioned as the shepherd of this new church john has been commissioned as the witness right and so he bears witness and his witness is true and witness is a key word that he uses and then he just does this musing like oh jesus deserves so many more praises than i gave him like but here's the thing he did so many other things and if i were going to try to write them down or if all of us tried to write them down like a world-sized library wouldn't fit all the books of all the praises that he deserves. But just know Jesus did some amazing things. Jesus met other women like the woman at Samaria and he saved them. He met other religious leaders like Nicodemus and he called them to himself. He did so many more amazing things than you could ever imagine. Not just the signs of chapter 20, but things. Just things that he did. And so a few practical things as we wrap up here. Come to Jesus. If you've been like, I'll just, I'll clean myself up a little bit, then I'll go to Jesus. I'm too unclean. I'm too sinful. I can't, I can't do that. You're exactly who Jesus is looking for then. I have failed so badly. There is no way he will take me back. And you're just the kind of person that he wants to make a special visit, a special pursuit of. Come to Jesus. Don't run from Jesus. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your unworthiness. And then put your faith in Jesus to save you. Jesus to forgive you. And then all of your failures, the things that keep you back, the things that hold you back from loving and following and serving and being on mission, those things that, that, that make you kind of just pull away, let those be the very things that push you to him. Run to him. Don't, don't run away. Stop running away. Second, search your heart. Simple question from Jesus to you, Jesus to me. Do you love me? And don't answer it quickly. Don't move on from it quickly. 
Let it get down in there and do what it needs to do. Do you love me? Not do you love religion, do you love church, do you love campus ministry, do you love Sunday school, do you love friends, all the good stuff that surrounds knowing Jesus? Do you love him? Third, faithfully follow, come what may. Yours may be easier, yours may be harder. Yours may have moments of absolute darkness and soul-crushing despair, and yours may be filled with, with a time of, ease and and recognition and success and prosperity, you just be faithful with what God puts before you. You be faithful until that last breath because that last breath can glorify God. That last breath can give encouragement to the saints. That last breath can be a testimony of his work in your life. That last breath can go on through the lives of others. You faithfully follow Jesus, what he gives you. Don't Hide it, don't compromise it, don't quiet it, don't turn it away. You'll miss Jesus. And don't compare it, because you'll miss Jesus. The road that he has for you is the road you'll meet him on. And then the last one, bear witness. The whole task of 21 chapters of John was to bear witness to the truth of Jesus so that you will believe he is who he says he is, and you will find the fullness of eternal life in him and him alone. You won't find it in this world you will not find it anywhere else. And your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your, your people you go to school with, they will not find it anywhere else. They'll only find it in him. The witness has been brought to you. Now it is your turn. It is your mantle. It is mine to be the next generation of witnesses, to the next generation of the gospel getting to a new generation. Do you love me? Will you follow me? Those are the questions this text forces on us. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we believe. Help our unbelief. We love, but help how pitiful our love is. We thank you that it's not our love, it's yours. You loved us first. And it's the power of your love that matters, not ours. But God, Would you fill our heart with a greater love? A love that keeps your commandments. A love that abides and bears fruit. A love that goes from you to loving other people and serving other people around us. God, would you do that kind of love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, let's stand and we'll sing out together uh, and then dismiss from there.